Every Lord's Day, we have the privilege of opening this book and uh, hearing God speak to us through it and seeing his glory on display in its pages. And so let's begin this morning uh, by thanking God for his word and then asking for him to give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see his glory as we study it this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and you reveal yourself through what you have spoken. You are the God who spoke in the beginning and you put your glory on display in creation and God, you are also the God who has spoken in these last days and you have put your glory on display in Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your glory shining brightly in the face of Jesus Christ. May he be glorified through the preaching of your word this morning. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open it with me uh, to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, the verses of this psalm will be on the screen for you when I read them in just a little bit, and so you can follow along that way. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples in a private room, and he made this claim. He said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And in that statement, Jesus made a striking claim about the entirety of the Old Testament, including the book of Psalms. Uh, Jesus' claim was this. The, the Old Testament writers, including those who wrote the 150 Psalms that make up the largest book in our Bibles, these writers wrote about Jesus. And the implication of that claim is that as we read the Old Testament authors, we should expect to find them writing about Jesus. As we read the Psalms, the authors of the Psalms, we should expect to find them writing about Jesus. And that is exactly what we find. Last fall, I preached a message from Psalm 2, and in that psalm we heard about God's anointed king, who turns out to be none other than Jesus Christ the Lord. And this morning we've turned to Psalm 45, and once again we're going to hear about a king who turns out to be none other than Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's hear about this king as we read this psalm together. Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. 
The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many color robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The occasion of this psalm is a royal wedding. Now, many of you, if you're honest, would not choose to attend a wedding or listen to a wedding song unless you were being forced to. And I suppose, in a sense, this morning, you're being forced to. But I promise you, this is a wedding and a song that you won't want to miss out on. The object of this psalm is a righteous warrior king. And here's a summary of what this psalm tells us about this king. In summary, according to this psalm, this king blows away those who behold him, and he betroths himself to those who bow to him. The king blows away those who behold him, and he betroths himself to those who bow to him. Now before we study this psalm verse by verse, There's a question that we need to ask and answer right here at the outset. And that question is this. Who is this psalm about? Who is the happy couple on this occasion? Well, as I mentioned, the occasion of this psalm is a royal wedding. It was a royal wedding of one of Israel's kings to his bride. And if we're looking for an Old Testament king that perhaps fits the description of this psalm, maybe Solomon is the best candidate. But we really can't be certain that this psalm pertains to him or any other specific Old Testament king. We just know in general it was written for the occasion of a marriage of one of Israel's kings to his bride. But although we don't have much certainty on the historical occasion for this psalm, we can be certain of one thing, that this psalm speaks about King Jesus. And there's a couple reasons we can be certain of this. Let me give you a couple of them. First of all, is the fact that there are several descriptions of the king in this psalm that are not fitting or appropriate for any of the merely human Davidic kings. For instance, in verse 17, the psalm closes by announcing that every generation will remember this king's name and he will be universally praised. That description doesn't seem to fit 
any of the sons of David except for the son of David, Jesus Christ. Also in verse 6, the psalmists proclaim that this king is in fact God himself in human form, and that his throne is forever and ever. And besides the fact that the reign of every Davidic king came to an end and did not last forever, it's also worth noting that it would have been entirely inappropriate in ancient Israel to refer to a merely human king as God. You see, the king who is being described in this psalm, he's no mere mortal. He is, this king is obviously divine. But another reason, and maybe most convincingly, that we can be certain that this psalm speaks of King Jesus is because of what we learn by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author is arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels, and he actually uses Psalm 45 to make his point. In verses 7 and 8, we read this. Of the angels, he says, and here's what God says of the angels, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, now listen to this, right of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 45, this is what God the Father says about God the Son, God the Father says this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So not only do the psalmists refer to this Psalm 45 king as God, according to Hebrews, God himself refers to this Psalm 45 king as God. So although this psalm most certainly describes the wedding of an unidentified king of Israel, this psalm also most certainly describes the wedding of the ideal king of Israel to his bride. And we will be introduced to her a little bit later in the psalm. But first, the psalm begins by focusing on the king. In verses 1 through 9, we hear the praise of the king. As the wedding psalm begins, we see that the spotlight is shining not on the bride, but on the groom. In fact, over half of this wedding psalm, it's spent praising the king and beholding his beauty, which seems a bit backwards to us, doesn't it? In our culture here today, wedding day has come to be known as the bride's big day. But here in Psalm 45, we find that these roles are reversed. And the psalmists make it clear that the groom is the center of attention on this occasion. Look at what they say in verse 1, before they even begin the song. They say, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Let me ask you, does your heart ever do this? The idea is that something truly good and right is on your heart, and, and you just can't keep it on the inside. The sight that you've, you're seeing, the, the thought that is in your heart is so good that it just changes your countenance. It bubbles over into your, your behavior. It saturates your speech. You see, these singers, the writers of this psalm, they are gazing upon a glorious sight, and they can't help but burst out into worship and praise. And what is the breathtaking sight that they are beholding? Well, they tell us in the very next line of the psalm, I address my verses to the king. You see, this psalm is about the king, 
But it's also to the king. It's a psalm of praise to him. This psalm is about one person. All of our attention should be on him. And that person is the king. And just before the singers open their mouths and sing to this king, sing this song of praise, they say this at the end of verse 1, My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. I don't know about you, but when I pick up a pen to write or set my fingers to the keys to type, I often find myself staring at a blank screen or a blank page just trying to figure out what it is I'm going to say. But in ancient times, the scribe, he would not pick up his writing utensil until he knew with great clarity what it was he was going to be writing about. He had meditated on what it was he wanted to say. His, his thoughts were collected and his theme was clear in his heart and his mind. And as he set his pen or quill to the paper and parchment, the words just flowed from his heart with ease and eagerness. And so to say my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe is to say that I am, I'm ready to pour out my praise to this glorious king. I, I have meditated on this king. I've been enthralled with his glory, with his beauty, and my heart is being stirred by the sight of him. I'm ready to let my praises flow. I'm not going to hold back. And as the psalm begins in verse 2, we begin to hear some of the characteristics of this king that have stirred the hearts of these singers. Now, first of all, they are stirred by the king's glory and grace. In verse 2, we find the opening line of this song. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. This is definitely a love song, isn't it? Some of you kids are sitting there already going like this. Ah, this is gross, right? Um, sounds like it came right out of a sappy love note, right? This sounds like something that should be sent privately between two individuals, not saying publicly in a public setting. That's just awkward, right? I mean, isn't this just personal bias? Subjective opinion? Isn't a declaration like this uh, up for debate? Well, I think we need to keep in mind who this psalm is ultimately addressing. If the psalm is merely addressing a human king, then yes, this conclusion is up for debate. But if the psalm is ultimately addressing someone who is more than just a human king, if it's addressing a human king who is also divine, then this declaration is not up for debate. Objectively speaking, this king is truly, without exaggeration, the fairest of them all. And when the psalmists sing that this king is the most handsome of the sons of men, they're not only speaking about his physical appearance. They're also singing about his spiritual attributes, his glory, and his grace. We see this in the next line of, of verse 2. They say, grace is poured upon your lips. The way that statement is worded, it conveys a mental image of a, a vessel of grace being poured over this king's head as he's being anointed, and the grace is just pouring over his lips. You see, gracious words pour over this king's mouth, but gracious words pour out of this king's mouth. In Isaiah 61, uh, Isaiah prophesied about a Messiah king who would come and would speak gracious words. In Isaiah 61, 
The Messiah King says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. There's that language of anointing. And he's anointed me to do what? To bring good news, gracious news, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his grace. These are some gracious words that this Messiah King would bring you remember what happened in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4? Jesus stood up to read from this exact portion of the Isaiah scroll. And when he was finished, Luke 4 tells us he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what was the response of everyone in that synagogue on that particular Sabbath? And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at, take note, the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. You see, King Jesus is a king whose beauty and grace is prominently displayed in the way he speaks and in the message of grace that he brings. And according to Psalm 45, this is part of what makes him the most handsome of the sons of men. Jesus is a king who speaks unlike any other king because he brings a word of grace that no other king can bring. We know this to be true because we look around us at the rulers of our day and their speech is coarse, it's crass, it's conceited, it's confused. But not so with King Jesus. Jesus is a king full of gracious words. And because he's the superior king in this way, because he brings a message full of grace unlike any other message that's ever been brought, the end of verse 2 says this, Therefore, God has blessed you forever. God has permanently conferred his honor upon this king because he is the most gracious and glorious king that there ever has been or ever will be. This king is full of glory and grace, and this is what stirs the hearts of the singers of this psalm. But there's more about this king that stirs their hearts. Notice next that they are stirred by the king's majesty and might. In verses 3 through 5, the theme of the song shifts away from the king's appearance and attributes, and it shifts towards the king's actions and his accolades. As I read these verses, I want you to picture this king in action. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Were you able to envision or picture this majestic and mighty king in those verses? The singers, they're shouting for this mighty king to show off his strength by strapping on his sword. They're raving for him to mount his mighty steed and to ride out into battle, a battle that he is guaranteed to win. They're pleading with him to fight for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, which are the very foundations of his kingdom. 
They're clamoring for him to, to put on a clinic of conquering with his right hand, his arm of power and strength. They're boasting in accuracy of the king's bow as he bends it towards his enemies and strikes them down in battle. I don't know about you, but this is an intense king. And if this passage didn't paint a graphic enough picture of this warrior king, we have a passage in the book of Revelation that uh, paints the same picture with even more detail. In Revelation 19, the same king is described for us in similar terms. John writes about the vision he saw of this king, and he writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It doesn't get much more mighty and majestic than that. This king is not just dominant. This king is divine. In fact, look back at verse 3, where the king is told to gird on his sword in splendor and majesty. You see those two words? That combination, splendor and majesty? That combination is used throughout the Old Testament. And almost always it is a reference to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But if we need any more convincing that this king is also God himself, then all we need to do is read the next two verses of this psalm. See, in verses 6 and 7, we find the, stir, the singers being stirred by the king's righteous reign. The king has ridden out victoriously in battle. Now he returns to be seated on his throne with his scepter in his hand. And the singers continue their song in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now there were many ancient kingdoms who made a practice of referring to their king as God. But I mentioned it earlier, that was not the practice of God's chosen people, Israel. You see, these singers and those who heard this song being sung should have been struck by the significance of this statement. Your throne, O God. See, whether they realized it or not, the king that they were singing about, the king they were hearing sung about, was none other than Elohim, the God of heaven. And that is why they could say that his throne is forever and ever. Because God is the only king who exists eternally. Every, every other king who has ever sat on a throne has had to continually leave that throne to go out and defend their throne. And eventually, every single one of them has lost their throne. But King Jesus is different. Because King Jesus is God, Jesus left his throne once to go out and to do battle against his enemies. He defeated his enemies decisively at the cross, and he returned to his throne, waiting for the day when his enemies would become his footstool. And as he's seated on his throne, 
We see his scepter in his hand, and verse 6 tells us that the scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. In other words, it's a scepter that upholds justice and righteousness. When the king uses his scepter to make ruling decisions, his decisions are always fair and honest, upright, and righteous. I mentioned earlier that righteousness is one of the foundations of this king's kingdom. And verse 7 tells us that his kingdom is founded on righteousness because he himself is full of righteousness. Verse 7 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You see, by nature, this king loves righteousness and he rides out to defend it. And by nature, this king hates wickedness, and he rides out to do battle against it. He's glorious and gracious. He's majestic. He's mighty. He is righteous in his rule and reign. But there's one more thing that stirs the hearts of the singers of this psalm, and that is the king's gladness and goodness. The king has struck down his enemies, and he has sat down on his throne, and now the king will partake in his wedding ceremony. Because the king has defended righteousness and defeated unrighteousness, he is now anointed again at the end of verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now let's park on this for just a minute. Because this verse is really, really cool, but it's also a little bit confusing. This king, who was just called God a verse ago, is now being anointed by someone who is called his God. Did you catch that? What's going on here? Is there a contradiction in this passage? Well, this is a passage that contributes to a biblical understanding of the Trinity. You see, in verse 7, the Father performs the anointing, and we are told that he is God. Also in verse 7, the king receives the anointing, and we are told that he also is God. And there's no contradiction here. You see, the Father and the king, they are one in essence and yet distinct in their personhood. And this is further proof that this king in this passage is the second person of the Trinity. Perfectly human, and yet also perfectly divine. And as God the Father anoints God the Son with oil, what is the result? Well, according to verse 7, it says the king is made glad. He's made happy. In fact, he is happier than all his companions. This king is the most handsome and the most happy being in all of the universe. And why wouldn't he be? He's about to share in his wedding ceremony. And so in verses 9 and 10, the singers, they describe just how good this king has it. Listen to all the pleasantness and the goodness that is just oozing from these verses. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Put it in plain English, life is good for this king. He's about to be married. 
He's wearing the finest clothes available, which, let's just be honest, who doesn't feel happy when they're wearing nice clothes, right? He smells good. Myrrh, aloes, cassia, whatever that is. Makes him happy. It also makes others around him happy. He hears enchanting music that is just wafting out of palaces that are inlaid with ivory. His wedding attendants, the bridal party, they're daughters of the other kings who have come to serve him, to pay homage to him. And best of all, he looks to his right side and his beautiful bride is standing there hand in hand. No wonder this king is so glad. And it's at this point in the psalm that the singers turn their attention to the bride of this glorious groom. We heard the praise of the king in verses 1 through 9. Now let's listen to the preparation of the bride. We find this in verses 10 through 15. Our first introduction to the bride is actually at the end of verse 9. We're told that she is at the right hand of the king and she is clothed in garments of gold. It's apparent that this bride has come to share in her groom's prestige and prominence. But the question we should be asking is how did she arrive at such a place? How did she come to the point where she is about to be married to the most handsome and happiest being in all the earth? Well, according to the next couple verses, there are two answers to those questions. First of all, she has been summoned by the king. Look at verse 10. The singers of this psalm, they sing about this summoning, and then they have a suggestion to share with this daughter. They say, hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. You see, there's a sense of urgency in this suggestion that they are about to make. Three times, they call this daughter to carefully consider what they have to say. And what is the suggestion these singers want to make? Well, here it is, the end of verse 10. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Now, this is kind of an odd suggestion to make to a bride on her wedding day, don't you think? The suggestion of the singers is not simply to leave her family and her nation, but to forget them. The bride is being summoned to make a crucial, gut-wrenching choice here. She can either choose to follow her kindred, or she can choose to follow the king. But she can't do both. She can either stay with her family or submit to this king, but she can't do both. She must make up her mind and move in one direction or another, but there's so much at stake. What will happen if she says yes to the summons of this king? Well, according to verse 10, if she says yes, the king will desire her beauty. She will become the chief object of the king's attention and affection. She will be cherished and loved by the greatest being in all of the universe. And she will be protected, she will be provided for in a way that no other being has ever been. You see, this king has everything to offer her, but if she's going to say yes to her summons, it's going to cost her. It's going to cost her her present comforts and connections. It's going to cost her her personal independence and identity. She 
She's at a crossroads and she's being called to make a calculated choice. In verse 11, her summons is summarized this way. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Since this groom will also be her king, her summons is not only to say yes to him as her husband, but also to submit to her king because he's her Lord. So what does the bride decide to do? Does she stay with her kindred or does she stand with the king? Well, the next few verses answer that question implicitly for us. Because in these verses we find that the wedding is on. The bride does not get cold feet or call off the wedding. No, she comes to the call of the king and she says yes to his summons. And because she says yes to the king, she is then showered by the king's blessings. Look at verse 12. As the bride is in her chamber getting ready for the wedding, the wedding guests are arriving with their gifts. It says, The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Well, the people of Tyre, they were to the ancient world what the people of Beverly Hills are to the world today. They were people of great wealth and affluence. They were people with great prestige and influence. And why are they showing up to this wedding? Uh, showering the bride with lavish gifts? Well, verse 12 tells us it's because they are seeking her favor. Because she is united to the king, to whom all the nations are subject, those nations are now also are subject to her as well. And while the nations are signing the guest book and leaving their gifts on the gift table, what's going on in the bridal chamber? We get a glimpse in verses 13 through 15. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Again, the glory of the king has become the glory of the bride. Because she's united with him, she is unparalleled in her beauty, and grace. The joy and the gladness of the king has become her joy and gladness. She's been showered with the king's blessings, and now she is being led down the aisle to be united with her husband. And as she arrives at the altar, her veil is lifted, and we are all watching with eager anticipation to see who this bride is. Who is this one who is privileged to be married to the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords? Which is a good question for us to stop and consider at this point, isn't it? Maybe this question's been stirring in your mind as we've gone through the psalm. Whoever this bride is, she is by far the most blessed bride that there has ever been because she is betrothed to the God of heaven, Jesus Christ, the King. And if we didn't have our New Testaments, the identity of this bride would be left in the shadows. But there are several passages in the New Testament that shed some light on the mystery and they shine a spotlight on this marriage. In Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32, Paul explains the mystery this way. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ 
and the church. And this is massively significant for two reasons. You see, not only does this passage in Ephesians teach us that the wedding of Psalm 45 is a portrayal of the wedding of Christ and His church, it also tells us that every wedding is a portrayal of the marriage of Christ and His church. Paul expounds on the mystery in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, when he says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So who is the bride of Psalm 45? We, the church, are the bride of King Jesus. We have been summoned by the King, and we've said yes. We've been showered with the King's blessings. We've been betrothed to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that very thought should astound us this morning. Because not only did the King summon us and shower His blessings on us, this King also shed His blood for us. King Jesus desires us so much that He was willing to die for us. And He did. King Jesus craves us so much that he was willing to be crucified for us. And he was. King Jesus has made us his bride, not because of our glory and grace, but because of his glory and grace. One pastor and hymn writer puts it this way in his hymn titled Jehovah's Bride. He writes in the first verse, We are his Jehovah's bride. We are one with heaven's king. Lifted to the Savior's side, with elation let us sing. Who are we to wed the Lord? To be held in His embrace, drawn by love's descending cord, we are His, a bride of grace. The second verse of the song continues. We are His, a cherished bride, loved at such a lavish price. Heaven's justice satisfied, paid by heaven's sacrifice. Who are we? to be adored by the Lamb who took our place, held by love's almighty cord. We are His, a bride of grace. In this psalm, we've heard the praise of the King and the preparation of the bride. And in the last two verses of this psalm, we hear the posterity of the King. In verses 16 and 17, the, the wedding's over, but the singers, they're still singing. You see, the wedding was just the beginning of this beautiful couple's life together. The king and his bride are united in their reign together over the nations. And as a result of their union, we see that many sons will be born to share in their rule. Verse 16 says this, In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. You see, the king and his bride, they will be fruitful and multiply, and they will fill the earth and have dominion over it. Their descendants will be more in number than the stars of the sky, and they will spread out and settle into the land of their inheritance. And the psalm ends with these words in verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. And this is really cool. Because these singers, what they're saying in that last verse is they want to make sure that every generation, every nation knows about this king and comes to praise him. And think about it. Here we are. 
a distant generation, and a distant nation who has come to know this king and to sing his praises because of Psalm 45. Are you glad you listened to this love song? Are you glad that you, if you are in Christ, are a part of this wedding? You see, this is the king in all his beauty. This is the king who blows away those who behold him. and He betroths himself to those who bow to him. So as we close this morning, I want to just ask two questions that will lead to some application for us before we go. Question number one is for those who have come to know Christ. You are united with him in this marriage. You are a part of the bride of Christ. If that's you this morning, let me ask you, have you been blown away after beholding the king in all of his glory? Does your heart overflow with a pleasing theme? Is your tongue like the pen of a ready scribe? I want to encourage us this morning to not gaze on the scene of Psalm 45 and leave here without having worshipped and praised King Jesus in our hearts. I want to encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, a, a member of this body that makes up the bride of Christ, we encourage you to behold King Jesus regularly in the Word. Every Sunday we gather around this Word, hopefully to see the glory of God shining brightly through the Gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, and yet we have access to this book every single day of our lives. What about on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday? Do you take up this book? Do you search the Scriptures, not just for some kind of warm encouragement, not some kind of nugget of truth. Do you search the scriptures looking for a sight of glory, the, the glory of God on display as he works through history and the glory of God on display as this book leads us, points us to Jesus Christ the King? Let me urge you, brother, sister in Christ, spend time regularly gazing on the glory of King Jesus. There are times where I sit down and I open this book and I, I have to pray and beg God to open my eyes to see glory, to see what he wants me to see in the face of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, if you pick up your Bible and find it dry and lifeless, pray and ask God to open your eyes to a fresh sight of who he is and what he's done in King Jesus. Behold your king regularly. Boast in your king regularly. Earlier in the service, we sang the words, Holy, Holy Lord Almighty, good and gracious King. I hope as you sang that, that what was happening to the singers of the psalm was happening to you. It was just bubbling out of a heart of thankfulness and gratitude and awe and amazement. Let that spirit carry with you into this week. Boast regularly about your King through song. As you encounter Jesus Christ. In the study of the scripture, share that. Boast about that to others. Shoot a text to a brother and sister in Christ, reminding them, encouraging them with who Jesus is and what he has done. Boast in him by sharing with your unsaved coworker or neighbor or somebody God brings across your path. Point them to the glories of your Savior who has so enthralled you that you can't help but share it. Behold him. Boast in him. Be faithful to him. Be a bride who faithfully submits and obeys this king. 
Don't turn your back on him. Don't be unfaithful to him. He is a bridegroom who has been faithful and will be faithful to the end. May we continue to be faithful to him. Just a word of application for anyone here this morning who has not yet come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, has not put their faith and their trust in Him. The truth from this passage for you is that you are not a part of this wedding ceremony. You are not a member of the body of Christ, not a part of the bride of Christ, and yet the good news for you is you can be. The summons of this passage was clear. Forsake your sin and follow this King. Choose to stand with this King and forget the life that you had before. You see, Jesus Christ is a king who has come and has laid down his life for sinners so that they can be one with him. And my plea to you this morning, if you have not put faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ, forsaking everything else, saying, I will take up my cross, I will follow Jesus, can I urge you, do that this morning. Church family, we are the bride of Christ. Maybe you look at the description of the bride in this psalm and, and you look around at the church here on earth and maybe you think to yourself, we, we don't look as grand and glorious as this psalm makes us out to be. And the reality of that statement is that, no, we, we are not. But the hope is we will be. Jesus is at work right now in his church to present to himself a bride that is holy and without blemish. Jesus is committed to this marriage and there's nothing that will ever cause him to call it off or to cast us aside. Jesus said before he ascended, I go to prepare a place for you and I will surely come again and receive you unto myself. Jesus is even now making the final preparations for the marriage supper of the Lamb spoken about in the book of Revelation. And one day we will see the scene of Psalm 45 played out. And we will be a part of it. Because we will be at the right hand of Jesus Christ, our glorious bridegroom. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Father in heaven, we bow before you. Astounded at the redeeming love that was displayed by your Son, Jesus Christ, in coming to this earth, living a sinless life, sacrificing himself, shedding his blood so that he could purchase and redeem a people for your own possession, a bride that he would unite himself to eternally. God, what kind of love is this? We, we, we marvel. We have no words to, to thank you or to praise you enough for what you have done in sending King Jesus. Lord, we pray this morning that we would respond rightly as the bride of Christ, as the church. Lord, may we behold King Jesus. May we be in awe of him. May we boast about him and, and submit and be faithful to him. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is being introduced to this king for the first time, who is realizing that this king summons them to forsake all and follow him, to put their faith and trust in him, I pray that they would do that this morning. 
Lord, even as we continue responding to your word, may you fill us with your grace. Give us a sight of your glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name.